Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell, and I am still sitting here in Miami Beach, but I have probably one of the most requested guests uh, for Shift Drink sitting with me here in a, in a hotel lobby in Miami, and that is Mr. Richard Seal of Foursquare. Um, we're, we're sitting here chilling, and, and I've listened to you speak for the last uh, 48 hours about rum, and thank you for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, Man, I mean, I don't know where to start, you know? <laughs> like, well, you know, a lot of times we ask, you know, where uh, where everybody started or what they had to drink last night, you know, because it's often telling, you know, what we what we all drink in our lives. And I know that we were here for Miami Rum Congress, which you've been largely, uh, you know, part of from the beginning. But any, what, what did you have to drink last night, Richard? Um, well, actually, we had a pretty quiet night last night. <laughs> Is that what we're calling it? <laughs> yeah, because... Uh, because we don't expect to be too early tonight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but you could say I was um, hanging out with uh, our partners. Um, so I had dinner last night with uh, with uh, Christelle Harris from from Hamden, and and uh, it was quite a big crew of us. But it was a Hamden and Foursquare crew. Awesome. I, I mean, I have to absolutely say, you know, thanks to Gail for like floating around and, and helping us to get connected as uh, your wife Gail's always been very fun. I always try to bring her pastries because she always has cool bottles in the bottom of her bag that she doesn't tell anyone about. And I know how to butter her up, no pun intended, with, with, with pastries. <laughs> but we've been, I've been listening to so many of your talks and again, you're a highly requested guest and I mean, I just want to dive right in because we've talked yeah, about yeah, some, really, some really cool stuff um, that I heard you talk about today. Um, for the, our listeners out there that aren't familiar with Foursquare, and I certainly can't expect there's that many of them at this point. We've touted it uh, enough times, but um, when we, you, during one of your talks, were talking about um, kind of the bacteria versus yeast and the, their roles in fermentation and like kind of the trade-offs that you make and, and how that kind of operates and I, I thought that well, was yeah so the, I mean that that panel that we were sort of being asked to um, you know explain the different rum making techniques and it was you know Roberto Sorales from um, Don Q and Neil Glasgow from National Rums Jamaica and myself and so the idea was to try to you know, explain, you know, go through the different techniques and so when we were talking about fermentation. So I basically just tried to sum it up and, um, you know, because, you know, in rum we have this, you know, concept of light rums and heavy rums. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually don't like those terms or I don't like the term heavy, but um, let's say we have light and, and more full-bodied rums and, and to sort of explain the difference between the fermentation across the spectrum, uh, is to imagine when you have a fermentation, it's, it's obviously got the yeast organisms, but it's also got bacteria. And you can either create an environment that's highly favorable to the yeast and not so favorable to the bacteria, or an environment highly favorable to the bacteria and maybe not so favorable to the yeast and you know everything in between. And so if you look at the lighter rum, so like for one of the things that Roberto Suarez was saying is that he would do a, a sterilization on the on the molasses. So basically, what he is doing is killing all the bacteria because he wants to create a fermentation that's very, very favorable to the yeast, and that's ideally when you want to make a more lighter rum. 
Right, so and, we were talking about like Don Q and yeah, then those so very light. What I, then you go to the other extreme, the, 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 the spectrum, you know, the very uh, high ester Jamaican rums are basically made with a natural fermentation. So you're talking a fermentation that's probably, let's say, a more level playing field between yeast and bacteria. So, you know, modern day fermentations, which are, you know, pervasive in, you know, whiskey and, 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 and rum, you know, you know, add in a cultured yeast, and this is a yeast strain that, you know, has been developed, you know, various strains. And so you're talking about a very favorable to yeast, you know, high yielding, uh, uh, and, but you always still have some bacterial action, you know, producing uh, acids which combine with alcohol to make esters. Uh, you know, one of the myriad of reactions that's going on. Um, but as I say, yeah, so very common in spirit making is more the more yeast favorable fermentation. And then, on the, as I say, this other side of the spectrum is the more, uh, the natural fermentation where there's a kind of a more competitive environment between yeast and bacteria. So what happens is you get a lot more uh, action from the bacteria, uh, lower yields of alcohol content in the, in the molasses wine, and so much greater production of acidity, and then of course a much greater production of esters, which you will then distill out. Sure, I think there's a so lot of- So I was of just trying that. to show people, you know, it's basically a spectrum. Uh, and it's where you lie on that spectrum. But, and the, the other point I was trying to make too is that rum is probably the only major spirit in which there's a significant amount of uh, production still by natural fermentations. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't know of any whiskey using natural fermentation. And I think American or people or concentrate so much on the distillation process and I think oftentimes the the fermentation and the importance of the fermentation gets left out but and you were talking even about like the um, kind of misperception that you know distillation is kind of seen as this sort of purification process I think because of maybe the semantics of the English language we talk about like let's yes. distill it down to this yeah, thing. So you know, the sort of layman understanding of distillation is, is a little bit inaccurate. And the root of that is thinking of distillation as a purification process. It's a separation process. So that's why when you talk about, people talking about, well, this is distilled up to 94% or distilled up to 95 or up to 96. Mm -hmm. They're thinking in the concept that distillation is purifying right. the, you know, purifying it and, and and the alcohol strength is a measure of how pure it is. And this is misleading. Um, distillation is not a purification process, it's a separation process. And uh, we, the, 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 if you might say, the power of that separation process is measured by what we call rectification. And, and so don't worry too much about what that actually is, just understand that the more rectification, the more separation. So, in a perfect scenario of distillation, you know, the multi-column, you know, ethanol plant, effectively, that, when that's banging out 96% mm. alcohol, flavorless alcohol, <laughs> what that's done is it's separated the alcohol from everything else. And distillation has a limit on how much it can separate from water, which is why it bumps off at about Depending on the you know the operation uh, pressure of the still, that bumps off you know somewhere 96 and a half to between 96 and a half and 97, and that's because 
you know, the, the principle of distillation uh, separation, which is by boiling point, is you know the principle that if you boil an ethanol or an alcohol containing liquid, the vapor has a higher concentration of alcohol. But what happens is you get to the azeotropic mixture, and um, depending on the pressure, they say it's about 97. If you boil a 97% alcoholic liquid, the vapor is also 97%. So therefore, distillation becomes an impossible to separate mm. alcohol from water any further. Um, but as they say, the, the thing to understand, as they say, is it, it's a separation process. And uh, so when we're distilling, whether we're distilling, let's say, a more full-bodied spirit, is when we've distilled a more full-bodied spirit, we have not separated the alcohol very well from all the other components mm. in the wine. Now, the one very easy to separate from is the water. So let's say we do a classic Scotch whiskey double distillation and we make it about 65%. That means we've you know, got rid of a hell sure, of a lot right. of the water, yeah. but you know, we've still left in you know, lots of congeners. And you know, compare that to, to a big multi-column plant. And or let's, let's imagine in our batch distillation process that we have you know, very, very high rectification, and so we have perfect separation. In that scenario, you'd be boiling up away, and the first thing that would arrive out would be the most volatile component, mm -hmm. let's, let's call that, you know, um, aldehyde, and then, you know, ethyl acetate, and it'd all come out one behind the other, like, you know, good soldiers. <laughs> right. um, but of course, that doesn't happen, because we don't separate very well. Uh, so I think that's the important, and, and the reason why that's so relevant is because the, the thing that people don't grasp is that, that this separation process is very, when it relates to alcohol and water, is very, very non-linear. Um, I'm trying to give you figures off the top of my head, but effectively if you sort of distill a, a wine around 9 or 10 percent, uh, you know, the vapor will jump up to, you know, about 50 odd percent, and then you, if you redistill that, it'll jump to about 70 something, and then you, you know, sort of redistill that, and it'll jump to about like 80 something, but you, you, you get these much smaller increases. Sure, yeah. So what a lot of people don't realize is, is that in terms of rectification, you probably need just as much rectification to go from 50 to 94 as you do to go from 94 to 96. Hmm. So that's why you can have, you know, a coffee still grain whiskey distilled around 94 and a half and still have a relatively, you know, significant congener count and then, you know, have a 96% from a big giant ethanol plant <laughs> and it's, you know, completely neutral because the gap between the two is huge in terms of distillation, separation, the level of rectification needing to go from that separation level to, you know, at 94 and a half to 96. So that's one of the areas where people get, uh, you get very sort of mixed up. Because if you think of, again, if you think of it as this, as this simple purification process, you think, oh, well, 90, that 94 and a half spirit must be really close to that 96% spirit, but it's not. And you would think maybe that something that's distilled at, say, 90 
is a miles away from something that was distilled at 75. No, they're actually relatively close. Right, uh, that, that's So it's a very really non-linear uh, curve. And I mean, and so, I know you're really well known for your vodka production. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that, that does cause some confusion in the distillation world. I mean, well, it certainly does for, especially people uh, outside of the industry. We have a lot of listeners that are outside of the industry as well. And I think that it's, it's really tough for people to wrap their brains around, I think, well, that, I, that but, kind but to of... to be fair, I don't, you know, I know when I'm around the enthusiasts, everyone wants to know these things. And sometimes one of the great challenges I have is that, you know, people want information. And sometimes, and, you know, despite me being sort of, you know, some sort of champion of transparency, sometimes it's very, you know, I have to be very reluctant on certain information because I know it's going to be misunderstood. Right. So someone will come to me and say, well, what's your time of fermentation? And, you know, I did a, a post on this and I basically said, well, you know, what are you counting? Because, you know, my simple answer, for example, is, you know, I'll say 44 to 48 hours. But we do a pre-fermentation step. And depending, we can do up to two pre-fermentation steps. And they're like 9 to 12 hours. And then we let the fermentation sit and rest for a little bit. So do I count that? Right. You know, so... So you think about, so like, all people, that kind of muneys the waters a little bit? Data. And the problem is, is what scares you is that you want people to get the right information, but you know when you just punch out some numbers, they're gonna misunderstand. So that's why, you know, we, you know, we just had that conversation about distillation, because sometimes I ask, well, what proof do you distill at? And you know, if I tell them, well, my coffee's still, I distill at 94%, then they sort of think, oh, that must be like, you know, neutral alcohol. No. <laughs> right. You know, um, so, you know, I know when I, you know, people want, enthusiastic people want data, they want information, but you've got to understand it as, as well, and, and that can be a, be a challenge. Well, it's interesting, because you're definitely kind of one of those, um, I don't, don't want to say necessarily a tastemaker, but you're definitely one uh, a person that everyone looks for, for it. To, uh, looks to for information. I'm sorry, we've been drinking since, you know, <laughs> the last 13 hours. But, um, man, there is obviously, and so I, I had a, I guess it's kind of a two-part question. I mean, uh, number one, I mean, I guess, how do you see that distillation has changed over the last, you know, as history, in history, so we're looking at the 21st century, how, you know, operating things have changed. And the reason I ask that is because if, if, if any of our listeners out there don't follow or Richard on Facebook, he's a prolific poster. Um, and I actually, I save a lot of your posts. Like, I mean, regardless of like some of the more fun ones that we get to sit and eat popcorn and, and watch the, <laughs> and watch the transparency arguments. It's like, I literally on my phone, uh, I, I can show you right here as I pull these up. Like I'm, I've saved all of your posts, <laughs> like <laughs> because there's so much great information that like it is, it's just simply not being talked about, right? I mean, you've done posts, uh, you know, about the importance of Flarenum um, to Barbadian people, and those are things that just simply aren't talked about off island. Well, maybe not even on island. I don't know. Well, you there's know? no question that that um, before we get to how distillations change. Um, you know, social media has changed the ability for very small distillers like ourselves to be 
to get this kind of information out uh, and talk about these things. So yes, I am prolific on social media, but not for any social reasons. But like not. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fantastic for us, you know. Like if right. that was. In other words, we can we have like a direct line. Years ago, if I if I developed a new new rum, and you might think, okay, well, let's go and put out a press release. Right. And you know, very few people probably would get it. The beauty of Facebook and Instagram, you know, you go there and you make a release, and within a very short time, thousands of people have it. But the right people have it. The right. people you want exactly. to have it, have it. Preaching to the choir. Yeah, and so this is level the playing field. Well, and like you just said, large uh, distiller and small distiller. I mean, with the you information, say, like, you like, say that I'm one of the more requested people, but you know, we're still a very small distiller. Right, we still right. need our sales. You know, we're not large, but we have a voice that punches above our size of, you know, sales and production. Absolutely, and it, I, I've very much said, I'm like, you know, I, I couldn't care less what your opinion is of like people that are prolifically using social media uh, as a platform, but like we have never lived in an era where here, I sit in Indianapolis, you know, I'm lying in bed and I, ha and I just have some weird crazy thought of like, <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I, I need to know something about Richard Steele's or Stills. Steele's Steele's <laughs> Stills. And then, like, I can actually get a response back. Like, that, that's what's the beautiful yes, part of, of in 2019. I can actually get, get real yes. information from the guy. Correct. Yes. Boots on the ground is, is making yes. that happen. Or if somebody wants to ask you how long your ferments are. Yes. <laughs> right. And, and, and get a very complex answer. Yes. And so, I mean, for me, yeah, I think so that's. So, what's happening is, one, we're getting the information out there, but then we also have to be very careful how the information is understood. So if I just, you know, I can, I can reel off tons of data. And you know, we would have this at the shows, you know, people would come and they'd have their little notebook out and they'd be asking me all of these sort of trivia questions. Mm -hmm. You know, well, what do you distill at? What do you barrel proof at? What do you, you know, and, I, and, and I'd be answering them and then thinking to myself, he thinks he's got a whole bunch of information from me, but the chances are, he's not left with any real understanding. Right, just pieces of the puzzle, but no yeah. real picture. And then you see too, I think it's also related to the fact that, you know, with modern day marketing, people come to me and they, you know, they will say, well, you know, tell us what you do different. And so everyone's obsessed with that. Everyone has to be different. And I go, well, no, it's not. We don't celebrate about what we do differently. We celebrate that we try to do the core good things and we try to do them well. And you have, you're a big history geek, which is one of the things that I love about it. I, I, and it's obvious, and I don't obviously get to talk to you but once a year, <laughs> but online I can see in the comment section, someone will ask a question and it'll be like a 30 second response by you that's quoting historical and factual information. I'm like, that's in his head, man. He didn't look that up, you know? Like, And so obviously, you, I mean, you really, really are a history buff. I, I, I've heard your vacations are often spent inside museums with your wife. Yes, I, 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 I am a history buff, and but the, 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 the challenge with rum, of course, is, is, is finding the information. It's not, right. um, you know, so. Well, luckily you're, you, know, you live I, in the birthplace of rum. Yeah, I, you know, I'm a student of uh, 20th century political history, and that's, you know, I'll never read everything that's ever published on it, but with rum, it's very, very high. I mean, people just did not write down the things that we'd like to know. Right. 
That's unfortunate, but I mean, I, there's there's so much information that, like I said, I garner from your posts. Just your original question: through. How distillations change? Well, I mean, All right, that's sure, a, yeah. That, that's a very broad question. Of course, the the thing that's you know a lot of people don't realize today because it's you know so taken for granted was how controversial the column sale was. Hmm. Um, this was you know. Huge, huge. I mean, you know, we have the sugar wars today and we all fight and argue about sugar. Well, my goodness me, today, you know, the, that pales in comparison to the arguments over the, 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 the columns still. And it was eventually officially blessed in 1908 at no less a, uh, a document than the report of the Royal Commission on, on whiskey and other potable spirits. I mean, it was that huge uh, a resolution and they, the column still was blessed, and that was that was the first time that any literally 111 years ago. That's yeah, so very that was recent. the first time, certainly on the English side, um, that they ruled down what, you know what we called it the rules, if you like, mm -hmm. the rules of identity. In other words, if, if a product's labeled, labeled whiskey, what does it mean? The product labeled rum, etc. That was the first time they answered these questions, and so the legitimacy of the column still came up was heavily debated. And most of the traditional producers, of course, were absolutely dead against it. Um, there was a representative from Jamaica who, you know, to, he was effectively the, the representative of, of rum. Jamaica was, you know, at that time, Jamaica and uh, Guyana would have been the biggest exporters to England. So they would have been the most important people to, sp to speak to. And they spoke to the, the commissioner, uh, to the, the um, they spoke to the, he, he, he was appointed as a, the commissioner for Jamaica to, to, to the UK for rum. Uh, J.C. Nolan was his main name. And he, you know, he was dead against the column sale. I mean, he said this will ruin our, our rum business, Jamaican rum business, you know. You, you know, they said to him, well, what do you call the spirit from a, a column sale? He said, well, that's, you know, rectified cane spirits, not rum. And, you know, they had the same fight in, in whiskey. And, as they say, famously in the end, the commissioners actually just didn't give a damn about technical stuff. They more or less came to the conclusion, you know, if it was from grain, it was whiskey. If it was from sugarcane, it was rum. They really did not address the, the argument. And so the column still was blessed. And, of course, out of that came arguably the most successful invention ever in the history of spirit making, which is blended Scotch whiskey. Uh, and, you know, the column still then arrived in, you know, by that time already, it was, in, it was already in that time in Barbados and Guyana. And it was blessed. I mean, Jamaicans held firm. They didn't put in columns till 1962. Yeah, yeah. There was that was mentioned in one of the talks today. Yeah. <laughs> they pretty and, vehemently. Um, uh, and that's one. And and you and you have the legacy of these things still today. So because Jamaica was so resistant to the column still, is why you still have Jamaican estates that do not have a column still. It's probably also why, even when the column still finally came in, Jamaican blends still have a higher portion of of pot still. So you still see the legacy. You know, reaching right forward into into today. Um, so yeah, and so that's the the main um, historical uh, disruption in the distilling of, of spirits. The other thing that comes about is more where we talk about in rum, and that's more the development of the multi-column still to be able to produce ethanol 
of, you know, basically neutral spirit. So a spirit that's, you know, 96% alcohol, but it's not the fact that it's 96% alcohol that's the most relevant part. It's the fact that it's pure ethanol and water, that all the congeners are gone and it's completely flavorless. And, you know, that's led to the advent of, of probably the most dreadful heresy in all the spirit world, which is vodka. <laughs> and it's also then led to, you know, where people basically fake a product by starting with alcohol and then flavoring it. Yeah, I was like, there might be a greater heresy, but you just addressed it. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, uh, yeah, and that's really, you know, sort of second half of the 20th century, the one of the key developments in the making of neutral alcohol was the development of the hydroselection column and that's around the 1970s. So it's really from that period that we were able with distillation to bang out this very, very neutral spirit. And uh, and it's, you know, and that's stated as, you know, when you have those rules like in the TDB where it says, you know, whiskey can't be distilled above 95 or you have the rules in the EU and they say no alcohol can be added those are designed to say this is not spirit making when you're making alcohol. So, yeah, gosh, you just uh, raised a lot of questions there. Um, I mean, switching over to, I guess, particularly what you do uh, specifically. So, Foursquare is uh, very often talked about as like being the the premium rum spirit um, or rum that you can get. Um, for anybody like myself that peddles the stuff, you know, we have several hundred, several hundred bottles in the bar. Your, your stuff's always sitting in the front, and you do you release the exceptional cast selections, uh, which I think I have just about all of them. But um, you know, they, they aren't inexpensive and they aren't easy to get. And I always hear this like because um, I'm I'm in Indianapolis, so we're very close to bourbon country. So everybody associates everything with bourbon somehow. Like, oh, so it's like uh, you know we get people coming into the bar like, what's what's the pappy of the rum world? I'm like, first off, I think that's really kind of doing a disservice because first off, I've had that old stuff, that old pappy, and I just think it's oaky and unbalanced. But regardless, that, that that's my opinion. I, don't, I know nothing about it. I'm gonna so I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna get comment. so many shitty comments having said that, but. Like, what are you looking for when you're doing your exceptional cast selection? Because you do several different brands, which we'll get into in, in a minute, like some of the other things that you do, but like that, that Foursquare label that you've got. And, I mean, you've got the 2004, 2005, that were, or the 05, I guess, just recently was released. Jeez, um, I can't even keep track of them now. You guys had the Dominus was released last yeah. year. You know, the Probotas, which we haven't seen yet, which that, that's a really interesting product as well. Uh, I mean, how do you make these choices? I mean, is there a choice, or you're just going out and kind of tasting it in, in, with an intent? I mean, yeah. Well, the the vintage part. So 2005 followed 2004. The next one in that series is going to be 2007. And don't even ask me. That's <laughs> I'm not complicated. I, 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 I saw the side eye. I'm like, I'm not the asking. The next one is 2007. <laughs> um, so that is the core. So 2004 was 11 years old, 2005 is 12, 2007 will also be 12 years old. Uh, that is a core, uh, you know, cast strength, pot column blends, 100% ex-bourbon barrel. And that's because that's the, 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 the kind of core of what we do. Uh, you know, the vast majority of what we do is, you know, export and barrels, that's the de facto 
sort of standard of rum and, and Scotch whiskey. Uh, so you'll always have that. So all that is, it's, it's kind of, instead of being a, a brand who's obsessed with saying we're the same every year, right, right. we're sort of saying, no, we're going to do a vintage each year. And the motivation for that is pretty simple. I mean, I was always very jealous of my wine colleagues that they were not obsessed with banging out the same thing every year. Yeah, They'd quite the opposite. The yes. Yeah, right. And I think it also allows me to shift a little bit with the, with the taste. So, you know, 2004 was extremely well received. 2005, I could make it a little more rummier. In 2007, might be a little more rummier still. Now I've, I've sort of wet your palate for rum. And when I say a little more rummier, a little more of the heavy-bodied rums from the pot still. Uh, so that's the beauty of doing vintages. We do have, you know, our core brands, which are, you know, more sold in Europe. Uh, we have a partner brand in the U.S., uh, Real McCoy. So those we'll do in the sort of normal brand way. In other words, you know, we do Real McCoy 12. We're trying to keep it pretty consistent each year. Um, but the vintages get the ability to, to do that. Uh, now, outside of the vintages, the ones that get the names, like mm, Ominous and yeah. Tyrion, that's where we kind of stray away from the core of what we're doing. And that was, again, also born of the idea that, you know, it's very difficult to create a new brand or a new skew, a new permanent skew, particularly for a small distiller. Uh, it takes a lot of investment, uh, a lot of commitment, and so what tends to happen is you end up not doing it at all. So the beauty of doing the, the ECS range was to be able to do things that a brand would constrain you from doing. Um, you know, so if you wanted to create a brand that was based on double maturation with bourbon and Madeira like Criterion, you'd have to commit to a succession. I mean, I have a mm -hmm. lot of Madeira barrels, but you know, not enough to to commit to a brand, and then you know you have a brand, you invest in a brand to grow it, blah blah, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the, the series allows you to kind of shake off the branding shackles a little bit, the branding constraints, the commercial constraints. So that's why you see things, for example, like we do castrate, because you've sh you've shaken off one other constraint. You've shaken off. Uh, Having to do cash training. Well, it's interesting. Having to do, you know, 40%. You don't care that it's right. more expensive. Right, because you're, you're not, not going to do it again. Not competing. Yeah. But it's also not competing. It's not a brand you're going to build and you have a direct right. competition. Right. And then everything flows with that. So you don't, uh, it's cash training. You don't chill filter it because you're going to over niche audience. So you don't care that it's not bright and shiny and ultra super polished. Uh, so you don't chill filter it, you don't put any caramel in it, because there's no color to match. This is not a brand, each batch paying out, you gotta match the color. Well, you haven't watered it down, so, you know, it's cast string. You know, the, the, the color comes in because, you know, you, you make a product, it comes out the cast in a beautiful color, and you water it down to 40%, and your color is wrecked. <clears throat> so that's where caramel color, that's the motivation of caramel color. And then, of course, each batch, you keep adding this water, they're never the same damn thing. So, so 
when you do the ECS range and you're doing it cast trick, you shake off the, the, the need. So now you don't you don't have to you don't have to get in the debate about caramel <laughs> with the with, with you know a fifty six percent rum. That's a really incredible way. I, I haven't heard you describe it that way because like on our end of it, I just we see like it's. Black Friday. Every time you release one of these things, everyone fights for it, and and they sell out immediately. Or sometimes they're only released in Europe, and we have to call over European friends to see if they'll mule over a bottle. But I just want to like give you a shout out that I I've never in my career in the restaurant business, and it's too many years now at this point, seen anybody do what you've done as far as like making sure that. No one takes your product and then marks it up 15 times to try to make profit on it and then to say, hey, if you want a bottle, contact me directly and I'll make sure you get one. I've gotten a few bottles at home that way that your, your wife um, has passed through to me at Tales of the Cocktail. That, that, that's practically unheard of, that anybody would say, I'm going to sell it to you for what it should be sold for. Don't let somebody well, charge you four times the price. I mean, that's been tough because first of all, a lot of this has taken us completely by surprise. Uh, for example, for Square 2006, which was European only, which is why you're not going to have Square <laughs> right. 2006 in America. So for Square 2006, which was Europe only, it was only 2,400 bottles. And it was gone in two hours. Um, I mean, this, this kind of thing blew us away. And so, you know, what would happen too is, that, you know, someone would go in a store and buy a bottle or two and then put them up on eBay three times the price. And you can't control that. And I think what happens too is when something sells out really fast, people get the impression that, you know, oh, the speculators bought it all up. No, yeah, the, you know, there's a couple, a couple got away, but it's, th these rums are not hard to get hold of. I mean, it's hard to, 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 for everyone to get one. Sure. And one of the things too, it also creates a, a, a sort of a bad impression is that, you know, let's say we released, you know, like, um, Destino, which is uh, 2,600 bottles. Um, you know, when you go online to buy online, you're not buying against 2,600. You're buying against the allocation for online. Mm -hmm. So it might be only like 200 bottles. So people go on and it's gone in a few minutes and then people feel, ah, they must have, all the speculators must have got it. And then especially when some bastard goes on eBay and puts <laughs> right, a bottle for right. 400. So it can be a little bit exaggerated, the problem. I think people think it's worse than it actually really is. It's just a, you know, a handful of, of uh, speculators. But we also have seen, and it's frustrating, uh, like particularly over here with the ECS, um, you know, we think it, you know, like the product should be like $90, you know, based on the normal formulas. And then you, you, know, you go in the store and you see 100 or 110 or 120. And the shop owners are there knowing that, you know, it's, it's fast and so they're, they're putting it, and I can't control that. But yeah, again, back to your point to trying to get people to have individual bottles. Again, again, that comes back a little bit to the beauty of social media. We kind of know who our friends are. And we were super ambitious with Triptych because we did basically a <laughs> That was the last bottle I got handed off. <laughs> yeah, we did a subscription list. That was super cool. And then we cool. found ourselves in big trouble because we couldn't get the stuff to America. Right. Uh, you know why? You know we didn't want to risk. You know you don't want to get in trouble with. You yeah, know, you can't go around the government. Yeah, <laughs> but having said that, we still. And I'm going to be admitting. Hope you don't have too many listeners. But we literally <laughs> arrived in New Orleans. No, that I know year, I listen to this. Um, with 28 bottles by hand, 
uh, and that was between about three or four of us. Um, and so there were a lot of happy American triptych buyers. Uh, I so may or may not have done that one. again because it was just <laughs> sure, yeah, too much. That's handle. that's a lot of work and a lot but of risk. Having said that, we still done um, a lot of still individual de- deliveries. But those are the kinds of things that create customers for life. On top well, of like creating like great to, products, like this weekend, I, you know, we've shipped all of this. To, you know, I only have what's you know my little personal stash left, and Steve Lukanek, really really good friend, who has done really wonderful things for us in promoting the rum and and you know has really become a great friend and 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 he you know he messaged me you know is there any destino to buy and there isn't any destino to buy but i brought him a bottle anyway and sort of handed that off to him this weekend and and yeah i'm glad we're still small enough we can do that uh sort of hand deliver a bottle it still matters i mean yeah. those, those those things really matter a lot and so i we are just getting ready to launch a new product. Um, I probably just pissed off a whole the, bunch of people. I didn't right, yeah. Don't worry. By the time they hear this, they'll be back at home. We're like, damn but, it! But I didn't. Steve is, a, is, you know, he's kind of gone above and beyond the call of duty for sure. us. Sure, so. always. Everybody, you, you can't please everybody. I'm, we're in the same boat with our tiki mugs at our new bar. Like, I couldn't bring any to anybody because then I would just everyone else would have gotten angry. Yeah. We battle the, the eBay problem because we see the same thing. We see our tiki mugs going online for like $175 and we're like, we charge 35 for them. Yeah. So we well, just open an eBay account when, and we just put they, them on again for 35 Yeah, because that's the thing. When, the, when these guys go and sell these bottles, you know, we don't get anything out of it. Right, yeah. We've sold it at the official price, you know. So the Provitas that's getting ready to come out is has some Hamden Estate um, blended into it. And it's, it's, at this point, it's really hard to separate, like, kind of the guardians of rum, right? You talked about the guardians of rum. I mean, tell me a little bit about that, because they, that's kind of where it came from, was that that project, right? And not yes. available yet in the United so States, but coming. So what happened was is some... Uh, Luca, and I don't know if your, your listeners will know who Luca is. Oh, so, they've heard him talked about. Okay, so Luca... Uh, we were actually in New York for the launch, uh, the so, Velia launch so a Luca year ago. So myself, uh, we went to Hamden Estate 2016. And that was part of the whole project that Luca ended up doing, where he's the importer for Hamden and, his, and the setup of the La Maison of Velia and the New York setup and the launch of the Hamden Estate uh, brand. And so he's... Um, you know, as the, the Hussey family will tell you, they bought the distillery. They didn't really know. I mean, that came out in the, the show this week. They didn't really know what they bought, how special it was. And they really sort of needed a bit of a hand in, in developing and taking sort of Hamden to a new level from, from a, as a you know, bulk producer to a branded. And that's where Luca came in. So I'm very proud that I introduced him to Luca because I felt he was a perfect partner for them. And we made this this pilgrimage to Hamden, and out of that was born, yeah, the concept of the Guardians of Rome. Uh, and out of that was also born the idea that for the first time ever, we would do uh, a joint venture in the Caribbean. Because, you know, as you know, you can buy rums that are blends of different islands, but all of those are, are brands owned outside of the Caribbean. All of those are brands that are bottled outside of the Caribbean, um, even aged outside of the Caribbean. 
So what we wanted to do was to do a blended rum that was 100% in the Caribbean. So Hamden is 100% Jamaican owned, Foursquare is 100% Barbadian owned. Uh, they send the Hamden element to me. Uh, the age element is from Foursquare, so that's aged at Foursquare. So we blend it at Foursquare, we bottle it at Foursquare, and then we ship it. So it's unique, never been done this way before. And so it's a way we're trying to signal almost kind of a, that the Caribbean is going to shake off 400 years of the colonial model, where you know we're just the raw material supplier to the value-added brands outside. No, we're taking it back. Uh, to the Caribbean. So that's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect is raising the bar of white rums. So what tends to happen out there in the, in the trade is you either got these very, very neutral rums, which are the predominant ones. Right. Uh, or you've got fang complete to the other end of the spectrum. You've got brilliant white rums Rum Fire, Hamden Rum Fire, all those wonderful Clarins, stunning agricoles. But you would appreciate that they're not very flexible. So as much as you'd love to go and make a right. daiquiri with an agricole <laughs> or a Clarin, you know That'd that be great for myself. your average customer right. might say, well, hang on a minute, this tastes a bit strange. Uh, and this certainly came, uh, not this year San Antonio Cocktail Conference, previous year, this certainly came home to me because I was doing a, a seminar on classification, so we were showing off how inadequate the classification of white rum was. And so I made a, we made a daiquiri with Bacardi and we made a daiquiri with Hamden. <laughs> so, to, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, so to write a, a cocktail recipe and said two ounces of white rum, you know, that was the point was to show this was, you know, crazy. But it also came home to me that as much as I loved the Hamden daiquiri, I remember thinking, but I bet a lot of laymen who had not developed the taste for rum would pick the Bacardi. Mm. You know, I love my Bacardi friends, and, but, you know, so that's, you know, it's not a terrible thing, but, you know, that's, you know, we realized that that's the trouble with bringing these big, beautiful, full bodies, white rums. So what we're trying to do is to bring a white rum, and when we say white rum, I'm using not, this is where I get confused, and I'm not using white rum in the sense of the horrible classification of white gold and dark rums. White as in a white spirit. Sure. As in a white spirit, that like gin, vodka, and, and rum are white spirits. In other words, the spirit, a cocktail, you know, mm -hmm. there are cocktails you want a clear spirit. Sure, yeah. Let's call it maybe a clear rum. Uh, so I want to bring a rum that has an appreciable and strong, well-identifiable rum flavor, but it's not going to turn back your customers when you switch. It's a perfect cocktail rum. I can't wait to see it. And there's a little a hint of color because the aged element does come yes. from your yes. from your distillery. Yes. So there is a little hint of, of yeah, the strong three color. Yeah, in there. There's four square column. And this is why I like people to understand properly about column distillation because people assume that everything from a column is lighter than a pot still. That's actually not true. 
heavy rums from a column, low rectification rums, let's use the right tip, low rectification spirits, like American whiskey, like Armagnac, which are made in a, in a column, but at low rectification, or heavier than pot still spirits. Mm. But columns can make the whole spectrum. But one of the things, as I say, why I like to teach about distillation is I like people to understand that my coffee still twin column 94% still has an appreciable rum flavor. It's lighter than the pot still for sure. So we blend the four square column with, which is unaged, and then we blend it with the Hamden pot unaged, and then we blend the four square aged two-year-old pot. And when we first conceived the project, I actually thought I was going to put the aged element, but Luca didn't want any aged element at all. He was like, you know, we're gonna show rum sort of, Luca's the uber purist, <laughs> okay? And when you're an uber purist, you don't even want the barrel to touch your rum, far less water or sugar, right? So he didn't want any aging at all. But me, you know, I knew it was going to be, you know, more premium. We were going to position a little higher and we get a nice packaging. And I just thought I need to give some, you know, I'm old school. Oh, extra I believe in value, aging. Yeah. I believe aging adds quality and value. I'm not one of these. You'll never hear me say, oh, age doesn't matter. I'm, <laughs> call me old school. I like age spirits. Uh, so my initial thinking was I was going to age. The, 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 the age element would come from the column. Column being the lighter spirit, aging, add some more flavor. And we did that. And also I was using four square pot unaged. It just wasn't right for me. And the reason that I figured it out was is because, you know, I've spent my life, well, not only life, I mean, I've been doing the pot, well, nearly 20 years, but, uh, you know, developing a pot still spirit to be aged. So every time I tasted my unaged pot in there, it was jarring me. So we switched and I put the unaged, the column became completely unaged. Hamden, of course, unaged, and then the pot Forsker is aged, and it suddenly tasted right to me. So that's yet to hit market, but you just referenced a couple of times your, your work with Luca Gagano, and, yes. and it's, there's no way to talk about Foursquare and yourself and Luca without talking about kind of, you know, you said the sugar wars, but even beyond that right now, we're kind of seeing this... <laughs> struggled to, to, to get that Barbados, like GI, you know, and see how we, that identifies, because um, you are the only Barbadian-owned distillery left on Barbados. Yeah, well, yeah, me and um, St. Lucas Abbey, but, but, you know, St. Lucas is a boutique. Sure. Small, but yes. In other words, of the major players or the players that have been around for a few years. So this is going to be tricky. I mean, I, I mean, you put 15 people or hell, you put three people in any room on any topic and I, th I can imagine it would be very difficult to like... Yeah, but the, the GI is not a democracy. Sure, right. The GI will be decided on what's best for Barbados Rome. Uh, the minister has already said that. He said, he said um, you know, I'd like a consensus, but... I'm going to make a decision. You know. 
Is there any indications which way that's going to go? <laughs> any indications on, on how that's going to play out? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> Use your common sense. <laughs> what is Bob? What is rum known for? Right. And again, we're talking about the home of rum, right? So, yeah. I mean, so, uh, yeah. there's a lot of history to preserve there. Correct. There's, there's, and, and that gets me to the point, which uh, one of the points I discuss um, in my seminar, um, you know, this terrible myth that, you know, rum doesn't have any rules. Yeah, that drives me crazy too, yeah. man. I'm like, it has rules. It's just they're all different everywhere that you go. Well, that's the case for whiskey or right, or exactly. Or and rum is no different. What's different is is that if you sell a bottle of Scotch whiskey in America, the TTB will enforce the rules of Scotland. If you sell a bottle of cognac in America, the TTB will enforce the rules of cognac France. Uh, and vice versa. If you sell a bottle of bourbon over in Europe, the Europeans will protect the word bourbon. The problem is not that rum doesn't have any rules, the problem is that you don't recognize them. <laughs> so you take AOC Iron Cold, one, the only AOC in, in rum, uh, and you know, that doesn't mean it's the only rum with rules, right, but the AOC right. has a very specific, is a very specific type of rule. And uh, so agricole is a protected word in Europe and in, you know, Martinique, Guadeloupe. But you come to America and you can put agricole in anything. Right. You can't write scotch in anything. You can't write cognac in anything. You can write agricole in anything. So people need to understand the problem is you don't recognize the rules. It has been illegal to add anything to Jamaican rum from, for decades. I mean, I did a post recently where I showed the 1942 Excise Tax Act. But it's earlier than that. That was just the oldest one I could put my hands on. So we're talking decades and decades in which it's been illegal to add anything to Jamaican rum other than color. And of course, you can bring a Jamaican rum into the United States and add whatever you want to add according to the TTB. Uh, so the problem is not that Jamaican rum doesn't have rules. The problem is, is that unlike Scotch whiskey, you don't say, I'm going to follow the rules of Jamaican rum in the United States. Do you see any course that, that's going to resolve that issue? Well, that's where, <laughs> where the GI comes in. Oh. Having said that, U.S. is a very difficult place. U.S. Is, right. does not have a good record, record of recognizing No, absolutely GIs not. Or basically other people's intellectual Hell, the TTB property. at this point, yeah, they have it right, exactly. I mean, you know, Scotch whiskey and brandy are exceptional cases. Mind you, they do recognize Canadian whiskey. I mean, it's... Yeah, well, of course, why wouldn't you? <laughs> In the horror, they recognize Canadian whiskey, not Jamaican rum. I mean, come on. Um, yeah, no, that's where the GI come in. And the EU has a mechanism for recognizing GIs. So, you know, the purpose of creating a GI is basically what you're doing is, GI is a trademark for a category. So you create a trademark with your name and, and you go and register your trademark and then no one can abuse your name. Well, it's the same principle with the, with the category. So you register an intellectual property, Barbados Rum or Jamaican Rum, and then you go to the EU and you say, please recognize my intellectual property. And what it done, once they recognize it, they, would, they protect it. So no one can use it unless you authorize them to use it. And of course, you only authorize them to use it 
if they meet the rules. So, you know, Scotch whiskey has a GI, which means the word Scotch whiskey is protected right through the EU. And so that's, that's, the, that's the motivation for having these uh, GIs. So Jamaica's a little ahead of us. They have, because the first place you create a GI is at home. The first place you have to, you know, right, recognize right, your intellectual property. So that's created at home in Jamaica. So there's an intellectual property called, you know, Jamaican rum, owned by the government of Jamaica. And then you go to the EU and you say, please recognize it. And, in, and once they recognize it, then a bottle of Jamaican rum sold in the EU doesn't no longer only have to meet the EU's rules, it has to meet Jamaica's rules. And so eventually we'll register ours at home and we'll follow the same thing. But the US is very, very tough. The US is not good at recognizing. They're not even good at it. Well, they, we are not even good at enforcing our own rules, <laughs> you know, of, of what yeah, is wrong and uh, what, what, so what can't I don't, be. I don't foresee uh, Jamaica rum and Barbados rum having protection in the U.S. in the immediate future. So I for those of you out there, the to pay attention to what you're buying. And, and that's what I always, you know, when our guests come into the bar, I mean, we, you know, they ask us, you know, it, it's confusing, you know, we, we talk, you know, that has a lot of added sugar in it or that has glycerin and we have all these things and they say, well, I, I don't know what to what to buy. Uh, you know, we're going to go to a liquor store and how do I choose a bottle because it's all very confusing. And I say, well, it's easy. Buy something from Barbados or Martinique or Jamaica yeah. and you at least know exactly what's in the bottle. Like Correct. that's, that's I, an easy I, way. When I get that, when I get, and I get that question a lot, well, how do I tell? And I say, well, Obviously, I can't give them a list of brands, and so my easy answer is stick with Barbados, Jamaica, or the French Islands. Yep, same thing. All right. Wow. All right. Cool. That, I'm answering my, the same my, way that Mr. I mean, Richard Seal is. I've, ruled, I've sadly cut out lots of very good producers in that. My simple answer. Well, you like can't make Lucia generalities. Or, or whatever, but I can't. So that's my my. Uh, my, my cheating quick answer. It does help and it, people. And it's a bit of a, sh uh, not cheating, but shortcut answer. Sure. But it's my safe way of guiding someone because I know if they pick up something from Barbados, well, I know uh, you are or, or a, a Barbados brand, not something bottled outside. Right. But a Barbados brand or a Jamaican brand or, that has or been a aged Martin in Barbados brand or a Guadeloupe brand, they're in, they're in safe, safe, safe territory. So oh, yeah, I should throw, make sure and throw St. Lucia in that as well. But you know, you're trying to yeah, give a simple yeah. answer to right. a question. And uh, those are also bottles that you may not necessarily run across. Like, the, I mean, you know, especially I'm in Indianapolis and Indiana, in the middle of the country, we often get ignored with uh, with some of the finer brands. And so if I told somebody to go hunt down a St. Lucia uh, bottle, they would say, well, I've never even seen one, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So well, as we kind of wrap up here, I mean, what, what's the future of rum as we're moving forward? Because there have been great strides over just even the last five to ten years. I mean, oh, yes. uh, like something that we're sitting here in, in, in Miami now um, in a kind of a second incarnation of a, a festival um, based around rum in Miami. Yeah, I, it's like, this can, is a thing. You, you These can, are family now. You, we're, can, you can look at it two ways. I guess it's a kind of a glass half empty, half full. <laughs> if you look backwards from where we've come from, you, it's spectacular. I mean, the level of knowledge, um, you know, appreciation of, of the, the pure and un, un, unadulterated rums. And I mean, it's, 
you know, when you think where we were, you know, four or five, ten years ago, what people held out as good rum, mm. you know, the bloggers and the, the everyone, and now what they do today, um, it's massive. It's a lot. I mean, myself However, included. However, if we still look at where we got to go, it can be a little bit depressing because there's still, um, you know, widespread perception of rum as being very, you know, cheap and ordinary. There's still a massive, you go in a very average liquor store and, you know, your top shelf is still basically 90% junk. Well, I feel like that speaks package. to what you were just saying, you yeah. know, like until we put the value on the geographic indication or the GI of like, oh, this is a Barbados rum or this but is Jamaican rum, do we value that mentally? I had an interesting conversation with um, one of the, uh, I don't like, I mean, word blogger probably is a little bit out of date now, but. <laughs> I know, it is. that's uh, how but, fast things have changed, yeah. right? But let's say rum writer, and he said to me, he said, I'm gonna write one of my first ever negative reviews because he says normally when I hate something I just don't write about it and the reason why he's come there is because there's a difference between brand criticism and industry criticism mm. and you know if you just come across a brand and you don't like it but there's nothing really you know fundamentally wrong here or, or injurious to the category yeah don't write about it but the particular product he wanted to write about again was one of these classic junk products, bogus age claim, sugary sweetened rubbish, not being presented as a flavored rum, being given the impression that this is a rum, given the impression it's a quality rum. Uh, it's, you know, the sort of one of the poster boys for what's wrong in rum. And he basically said, look, you know, I'm gonna write, I'm gonna call it as I see it. And I said, you're right. You know, we have to do that. If you're going to be making a contribution to the rum category, no, you don't go and shit on a brand maybe because you just, you know, it didn't really impress you. But when you have an industry problem, yeah, you've got to call it out. And we do have an industry problem, and, and you, I know you work very, very hard and pushing for transparency in the business. I, I, and how do we get there? I mean, I know that's a very hard, well, I, there's no quick answer but, to that, but I mean, but how do we chip away that, at the stone? In other words, it, it, that's the, what's changing, is that the, the level of knowledge is increasing, so the people who are influencing rum, writing about rum, I mean, look at you here, look at the conversation we're having here. Five years ago, would we be having this conversation? Would you be having this Absolutely not, audience? yeah, right. So this is what's changing. So he, he's gonna write that article, his audience is gonna read that article, and things are gonna go on. And when you look at the reviewers, um, you know, the way I like to describe it is we're moving from fanaticism to cynicism. Or sorry, not sorry, wrong word. Ugh. I was like, okay. Fanaticism to criticism. There sorry. we go. I Too was like, rum. wow, we've all ruined ourselves. We're all cynics <laughs> <Sorry>. now. <laughs> Too much rum today. Uh, no such from thing. Fanaticism to criticism. Because when you're, when you're, when you're new in the category, you're a fanatic. So everything's wonderful. And we need to grow up to become critics. Mm. Because that's how you take the category to the next level. And I certainly, I think we've seen that for the geeks. <laughs> you yes. know, those, us, exactly. and if we can, as we all when you, spread when you the word. When you start as a geek, you're just, everything is wonderful. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I've you know, long since said on this show. Every new that comes out, 
We this happened very accidentally for me, like yeah. ten years ago. I opened a restaurant. You know, and we had crappy rum on the shelf. Your palate gets more sophisticated, right. and your knowledge increases. So your appreciation of the good stuff goes up. Right. So so you're now even more enthusiastic about the the, the really good stuff, the genuine. You know, I mean, think about how you when you look at something like a. A, you know, beautiful age Hamden versus how you might have looked at it years ago, your appreciation goes up. And but conversely, you now know the, the, the real shit. And and you start calling it out. We start having conversations like the one we're having. And this is how this is how we're making the progress. And we're gonna keep making it. Chipping progress. away at the stone. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk, I've talked about rum on probably every damn episode since we've started this. We're not a rum podcast, but, you know, that's certainly where my passion lies. I couldn't talk more than a couple of episodes about bourbon because well, I'm with you, you, right? Will, that's not I mean, where I spend not, my time. You know, I can't really, you know, directly compare because obviously there are people out there that are super enthusiastic for whiskey and, and bourbon. But rum, we have an in, incomparable diversity. And I'm talking genuine diversity, not absolutely, not yeah, a chemist no. who puts two drops <laughs> of flavor in. Uh, genuine diversity. Well, like you just said, uh, you know, send somebody to the store to look for, you know, Jamaican, Barbadian, yeah. or, or French. We have incompar, and we have an incomparable history. Uh, Far older than bourbon. <laughs> sorry. Far older than bourbon. Yes. Uh, <laughs> rum making. In the mid-1600s, Barbados was making more rum than France was making brandy, or Ireland and Scotland combined was making whiskey. Yeah, far more. That's wild, man. Yeah, more than double. <laughs> Barbados was, you know, excluding, you know, the white spirit in, in Russia, Barbados would have been the, the, you know, when you look at whiskey, brandy, and rum, you know, the big three, Barbados alone, just Barbados would have been the biggest spirit maker on the planet in the mid 1600s. I would love to sit here all night and just pick your brain on history because, and that, but again, I encourage everybody out there listening, like find Richard on, on Facebook. We'll put a link to it on the show notes because there's a lot of really cool historical information that you put out there. Um, I've learned a ton. Like I just showed you, I'm like, I have all these posts saved in my phone because there's a lot of really good educational material that we use for our staff. Um, we've actually talked at length about Flernum um, based on your posts and comments on that. And, and so, yeah, I'm hoping to do a Flernum seminar, Tales of the Cocktail. It passed the first hurdle, uh, you know, in their review process. Uh, and I'm hoping because, um, I mean, I like most people. I, I don't think I realized, you know, Flernum how important is, the history yeah, of Flernum was. Flernum to, is, you know, not only did well, we just give the world rum as we know it today, but we give the world for learning. And those tiki files like us, we would be stuck. Yeah, so a lot of people don't, I didn't realize how many people did not know that Falernum was indigenous to Barbados. And it's quite old. Um, so it is probably one of the oldest liqueurs that's still around. Um, the earliest reference I have to it is 1820. But that's a p passing reference. It's not the origin. Sure. So it's well, it's probably, you know. It was well ingrained even by 1820. Correct. Uh, and the, the wonderful thing is, is people send me a lot of stuff on, on uh, Falernum. So 
as I said in my seminar, when I say I discovered this, I actually mean I discovered it in my inbox. Um, <laughs> it's a good place to discover yeah, things. So it's good because then I'm able to sort of gather all this stuff up and, and try to put it, you know, and interpret it. Because that's the trouble when you're doing, you know, history of, of drinks, like for learning. I mean, people didn't write these things down. So you have to take what you can and it's like a, you know, a murder mystery and try and, and, and piece it together and, and give your best interpretation on the evidence. Um, we thank you for that, man. Because I will tell you, those of you that are history geeks about this, we wouldn't be able to do what we do on my end of it. I, I ran into Jeff Barry a little earlier, and I, I told him, like, thank you for my career. <laughs> you know, yes. like, I mean, yeah, I, we wouldn't even be able to make a proper zombie. Well, <laughs> so, like, the, you know, so there's, you know, two aspects to the sort of Falernum stories. One is the, the kind of the Barbados story, and then the other story is, well, how did it end up in American classic cocktails? And that's the part that Jeff's done, you know, um, you know how, how, how the Falernum got here. Um, you know, how did this Barbadian liqueur end up in America? And all these tiki drinks, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that—that's another story in itself. I can't wait for the t the talk at Tales of the Cocktail. Well, hopefully they'll they'll accept it. Oh, I'm sure they'll accept it. Come on. Um, so before we wrap up, I always like to ask our guests, um, and I, I've dropped the ball in the last several episodes as. Uh, as I often do, but uh, you know, is there any hangover cures you have for yourself? I know that we've all been going hard pretty uh, the last few days. Other than like last night, I think everybody went to bed early to prepare for this evening. But uh, anything that any secrets we need to know about? Uh, Pace yourself. Yeah, that's the hard one to do though. Prevention, <laughs> prevention is better than cure. Uh, yeah, there are no cures, are there? No. Older I get, it harder it is. Yeah. No. I'm pace, trying a new regimen this weekend, and it's not helping. Pace yourself. Richard, I know that it's been it's been hard in the last couple of days to try to pin you down because everybody wants wants to chat with you about everything because you're a fascinating yeah, guy. This doesn't turn out to be too noisy a location. No, it's it's super, man. Like you know, we we do this in bars all the time, and and it's always a good time. And you know, after lugging a, a hell of a lot more equipment around uh, Amsterdam and Alsace last year, I decided that I was never using heavy microphones again when I traveled. So they're a little noisier, but they're they're perfect. So. I appreciate you you know, coming on and doing the show with us, and hopefully we'll be able to do this again soon when we all come back together as rum family, and uh, we'll probably talk about yeah, some other cool sure rum. Probably triggered more questions. Than, oh yeah, like I, there's a, four or five hours. I just but you know at least now all of our <laughs> listeners out there. Start. We have a lot of people out there that you know aren't rum geeks, and we get questions. Um, and though you are a highly requested guest, there's a lot of people out there that are bourbon drinkers, and my my co-host that's kind of well, he's in Kathmandu for the next several months. But uh, I mean, he's a psalm, so he's a wine guy. So all of this is kind of really fresh for him every time we talk about spirit. So. Um, again, I appreciate it so much, no, Richard. I, I'm, I'm sure your uh, your lovely wife Gail is probably getting 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 shitty with me by keeping you for an extra hour. So no, we'll, we'll we, let you we get back. Come and visit. But uh, oh, absolutely, you're welcome anytime. You let me know, and we'll ro we'll roll out the red carpet. So again, um, thank you very much. Is there oh, social welcome. media? So we mentioned uh, on Facebook. Are you active on any social media? Yeah, I run. Uh, so there's a Four Square Distillery Facebook page. Okay. And then my personal Facebook account. And as I well highly, as you're a friend of a friend of mine, I'll add you. There you go. And I um, highly encourage you folks to follow him. And then there's a Foursquare Instagram page, which is run by Gail, my wife. Oh, oh Gail does that. Okay. Yeah, she does the Instagram. Um, and that's it, really. So, okay. And you will see, I think you will know this, that you know, we don't 
do the kind of usual marketing stuff. It's more educational. Um, and I always the appreciate that tends more. tends to be a little bit more of the marketing sure, stuff with yeah. a picture of a nice drink. And, <laughs> but as you know, the Foursquare post, well, certainly my personal post. So what we try to do is, yeah, the marketing, the, little, the kind of fluffy marketing on the Instagram, Foursquare, uh, solid but, you know, brand information. Uh, and then my personal page is more like the industry issues. Yeah. yeah, and it's and, and, and know, this I don't is really a want to put an industry issue on my Foursquare right. page. Well, it's a wonderful it's time to be following a, along on the industry yeah. issues because uh, you know, you, like you said, everybody, we are working through that GI and Barbados now, and yeah. and with you know you being the only Barbadian own distillery. I'm not going to get deep into that. First off, we've been sitting here too long. Second off, I ran into Bailey Pryor of Real McCoy Rum, whom you produce yes. Real McCoy, and he told me that he is working on a documentary to talk about the last Barbadian distillery, so I don't want to step on Bailey's toes because he, he wins Emmys. We don't win that yes. kind of stuff, so <laughs> yeah, we'll let he, him he cover that. He's doing. He does. All right. Well, thank you so much, Richard. Um, you have a, a wonderful rest of the evening, and we'll see thank you again you. soon. Okay. Cheers. Thank you.